Well, if there's one question that seems to dominate the modern mind, let me suggest that it is some form of what am I doing with my life? And there's probably there's probably a hundred different reasons we might ask ourselves that on any given day. Maybe you've got a, another birthday coming up. And you're wondering, man, how did that number climb to where it is today? Maybe you're new to the Bow Valley and someone has graciously offered to take you out on a, a hike or a bike or a ski or something. And you get to the top of that ledge and you look over the edge, over your handlebars or over the tips of your skis and you think to yourself, what am I doing with my life? Maybe it's, it's when you're uh, sitting at home on the couch and, and Netflix asks you, are you still there? And you think, man, if, if Netflix has asked me what I'm doing with my life, maybe I need to ask myself that too. Maybe it's when a serious health diagnosis comes up for you or, or someone you love. Man, what's, what am I doing with my life? Maybe it's, it's, it's getting ready to just go to the office and grind out another day. Man, is this it? Maybe it's, it's reading scripture and you read a passage or a story or, or something or, or a devotional that goes along with it and, and it just tugs at your heart and you're thinking, man, what am, what am I doing with my life? Now, some of us spend a lot of time diligently trying to wrestle with this question. Maybe we even start and close our day journaling it. We've got this nice heading on the topic of our bullet journal. What am I doing today with my life? At the end of the day, how did I spend my time today? Some of us do all we can to avoid dealing with this question because if I ask myself that question and if I actually try to wrestle with it, I probably won't like the things that come up. But wherever you are on that spectrum, either avoiding or digging deeply into the question, I'm sure that even already today, already this morning, you have asked yourself some form of that question. What am I doing with my life? And what's fascinating, and if I'm honest, it's a little bit terrifying as well, is to consider how many of my thoughts, how many of my answers to that question revolve around me and just me. If I look close, so much of my day is taken up with answering the question, how am I doing today? How am I feeling? Am I feeling good? Am I feeling bad? How did that person make me feel? Make me feel good? Make me feel bad? How did I sleep? Do I feel rested? Do I need a nap? Should I go to the kitchen and make a coffee? Uh, yes, of course, obviously. Am I getting ahead or am I again falling behind? How am I doing today? Wherever we are, wherever we, we work, wherever uh, we go to school, at home, in any relationship, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, we are always primarily viewing the world and our circumstances and trying to reply or, or respond to what the world is doing to us, to me. How does it make me feel? And sometimes we do get hit with a bigger question than should I have another coffee or not? We, we try to wrestle with, why am I working so hard at this? Why am I putting in so many hours? Is it actually worth it? What, what am I really living for? What am I achieving when I get to the end of it? What am I not achieving? Did, did I do enough? Did my, my career uh, bring enough? Or whatever it might be. The point is, the one person that I am always most acutely aware of and pay attention to the most is me. There's an old saying that says, you're not what you think you are, 
but what you think you are. You're not what you think, but, but, but what you think, that's kind of where you become. Uh, pastor and counselor Paul David Tripp similarly says, no one is more influential in your life than you because no one talks to you more than you do. How many conversations are, are rumbling through your head, are, are, are you wrestling with it, that are focused on you, on me? So even take a minute right now and think about this. Who do you spend the most time thinking about? Who, who do you spend most of your time thinking about? Now for me, when, when I was trying to wrestle with that question myself this week, I, I, I thought to myself, well, obviously it's other people. I, I'm married, I think about my spouse, I've got kids, I think about my kids. I'm a pastor of a church, I think about our congregation, I'm, an, I'm a neighbor, so I think about our neighborhood, I, I live here, so I think about the community. But the Lord is so patient and so kind and so good that as I explained this answer to him, his gentle response was, really? How about when you responded to that email or that text and were intentionally a little bit vague so that it could be misinterpreted with a bit of a sharp tone? Who were you thinking about then? How about when you were grumpy with your wife or your kids? Who were you thinking about then? How about when you got behind that driver that would just not get out of the way, or that person that merged in at 90 when it's 110, who are you thinking about most then? Okay, the person I think about most is me, and how everybody else inconveniences me. Now, the preacher in Ecclesiastes seems to take this for granted, that we primarily think about us. Uh, we fill our thoughts with plans about ourselves, and we're constantly trying to work out how we can navigate this world in a way that gives us the most meaning and happiness and purpose. But the preacher tells us in Ecclesiastes that this is actually the very source of our pain. The reason we're wrestling with these things is because we're focusing on ourselves. And so in this next section of Ecclesiastes that we're jumping into, we're given a new question to ask ourselves. And the preacher challenges us to find an entirely new way of living. He wants us to take this question and not just be one that we intellectually answer with, an, with, yes, of course, I think about other people, on a Sunday morning when the preacher's talking to us, but he wants us to have this question get into our minds and dig down deep into our souls so that when we answer it and when we, we live this new way, we experience a transformation that can only come from the Lord. Here's the question that he gives us. Ready? How are we doing? Not, not how am I doing, but how are we doing? How are, how are the people around me doing? How is whatever community looks like, how are we doing? See, if, if you and I can find a way to live in this world where the people around us, whether it's our, our friends, our spouse, our kids, our coworkers, whoever God has put into our path, if they're the ones that we think about first, and then we'll find happiness and contentment, those things that we're pursuing. If we can spend our days thinking about how we can help and serve someone else, how we can be that certain kind of person to someone else, then we'll find a level of contentment that nothing else can bring in our lives. Now, as I say that, let me throw out kind of two sort of caveats to go along with that because we need them. First, I see lots of you doing a really good job of this already. Keep it up and keep growing in this. Keep, keep thinking about others. 
So carry on with that. The second really important caveat to this thinking about we is that there's a limit. Okay, self-care is a real, needed, and essential thing. I would suspect that uh, many of us, probably all of us can think of in just a few minutes, somebody that we know or somebody that we're aware of, maybe it's even us, that has burnt themselves out by giving themselves too much to other people and neglected taking care of themselves. So, So boundaries are important. Don't hear me say serve, 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 and forget about yourself, right? Boundaries to this are important. I recently had a mentor challenge me with a quote that I'd I'd heard before. I couldn't remember where he'd pulled it from. Uh, I couldn't pin it down, but he said, the best gift that a pastor can give their church is a healthy pastor. That's why I keep meeting with him. That's why I have some other strategic uh, relationships. That's why counseling is a thing, right? Because the best gift I can give the church is a healthy me. But this quote, wherever it came from, extends to everybody else as well. The best, give you, the best gift that you can give your family, your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, the people around you, is a healthy you. So we need to p- take care of ourselves as well. That's the second caveat. But as we start to look at this text, notice what the preacher doesn't say. It's always important to see, okay, he picked one thing, but he left some other things out. That's interesting. Let's dig at that a little bit. Now, we might expect that, that the, the preacher, the teacher would say, if you love others well, you will become more spiritual, or you'll become more godly, or you'll be a better follower of Jesus. And all of those things may be true, but that's not what he goes after in the text here. The preacher points to happiness and rest. And we'll read the text in just a minute, but look at verse 6. We're in Ephesians chapter, not Ephesians, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 6. And here he points to a, a quietness in one translation or, or a tranquility or a rest, depending on what you've got in front of me. The, the word simply means that you'll have a, a peace of mind or a calmness of soul. That's the target. That's the highlight of this kind of living. Uh, it captures the idea of a, a deep, well-meaning person who, who knows their place in the world, who's content with the boundary lines of their own life and is able to enjoy the fruits of their labor with a cheerful heart, which is a lot of what we've been looking at already in these chapters, isn't it? And the key, he says, to finding this kind of rest or peace or tranquility is to live for we, not to live for me. Now we're three, four weeks into Ecclesiastes. We're into chapter four here. And and what we've been seeing develop in front of us is what it looks like to live a wise and faithful life. And so far, the teacher has challenged our innate desire to try to uh, get ahead of both nature and, and of really, of creation itself. He, we're trying to get beyond the boundaries of time and, and, and dodge death and actually control nature itself. That's what we're trying to do. And he's trying to, to challenge that desire in us and say, really? So he's gone after that desire to avoid hard things, and now he points us to this uh, internal desire to get ahead. Sometimes at all costs, rather than living for we. The picture that's being painted for us looks like this. Uh, Neither the world or our own lives are ultimately completely within our control. We love control. We love to hang on to things and and decide where we go. And and boy, have we learned that we are not in control in the last couple years. David Gibson, a commentator, says this. If you spend your whole life refusing to accept 
that the day of your death is approaching. If you live and work 24-7, thinking that by doing so you can get ahead of the game and have a better life by, by making more money, or that you understand the world by getting the right degrees or reading the right books, or if you think you can really leave a lasting mark on the world through what you do, then you're spending your life trying to punch above your weight. That's what we're learning here in these chapters, that we are the created. We're the creatures, not the creator. And what the preacher wants to do is remind us of that. This world is not all about us. We are not gods. Our life is a gift. It's not about gain or profit. Our lives have been given to us by God. And one day, every single one of us is going to get called home. And so he says, embrace this life for what it is. God has given us great gifts, so enjoy those gifts. But don't make those gifts be what your whole life is about. Live for God with, with reverence and obedience and with fear is the word often used. And that's how we'll find happiness. Even though some days, and, and honestly, a lot of days, we will walk through hard things. But enjoy food as a gift is an example we're given. Enjoy a glass of wine if that's your thing. Enjoy all the good things that come your way because they are gifts from the Creator. But enjoy them for what they are. Gifts, not God's. And here in chapter 4, kind of another layer is added on top of that. And it's as simple as share what you have with others. Simple, right? And this is really intimately connected to what it means to know God. Jesus said the most important commandment in Mark chapter 12. He said, the most important commandment is this, that you would know the Lord your God and love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these, he says. So let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And when we do so, we're going to look at it in light of the entire Bible story, which is what we try to do every week, not just kind of pigeonhole texts out and see what they say there. But. And when we look at it, at, at this chapter in the midst of the larger story, we'll see that, that the preacher is really giving us two options for life. The first is to hate your neighbor and destroy yourself. And the other is to love your neighbor and thus love yourself. Let me start reading for us. Ecclesiastes 4, starting at verse 1. The teacher says, Again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. And so I commended the dead who have already died, more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, the one who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. And I saw that all labor and all skillful, skillful work is due to one person's jealousy of another. This too is futile in a pursuit of the wind. And we get this little parable. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of the wind. Once again, we're kind of in a really like heavy passage. And so we're given these two options, and the first is to hate my neighbor and thus destroy myself. 
for the first time, the preacher's given us a, a kind of a definition or, or a specific form of the wickedness that he's seen under the sun. And he's given us this word oppression. And I suspect that even as, as I read those words or as you're looking at those words in, in your Bible in front of you right now, when you hear that word oppression or oppressed, all kinds of images come to your mind. When you hear of, of the one who doesn't have anyone to wipe the tears from their eyes, you, you can picture this somewhere probably, right? Now the preacher said, I've seen the violence in the world. I've seen the tears of the victims who don't have anyone to be with them to help them. I've seen dictators crushing the weak just because they can and no one's there to protect the vulnerable. And he goes so much that he actually congratulates the dead because they're dead. And even more, he congratulates the ones who haven't lived yet because they've been spared from this. And now, now that's a picture. As people as humanity, and even more so as Christians, we need to come up, I think, with just how, how sheltered we are here in the Bow Valley from so much oppression that's going on around the world. Some of it makes the news, some of it's making headlines right now, but so much doesn't make the news. And we could spend untold time and shed untold tears under the crushing weight of the oppression that goes on around the world. And as follower of Jesus, we, we have an answer to that. We have Jesus, but we never want to be uh, too simplistic when we give that answer to oppression. When we take Jesus into hard places, we need to remember that it, it, these are difficult, hard situations. And Jesus did this well himself. In Mark chapter 7, he healed a man who was deaf and who could barely speak, but he isn't unmoved by the suffering. This is what we need to see. In Mark 7, 34, uh, we see Jesus interacting with this man, and we read that he sighed deeply. He let out just a groan, like he didn't know what else to, how else to express himself. And then he said, be opened. And the man could hear, and the man could speak. Later in chapter 8, we, we see the same kind of language, language when, when Jesus sighs at the hard-heartedness of the religious leaders. Uh, later, Paul uses the same word in Romans chapter 8 when he says that all of creation groans under the weight and the trauma of sin in the world. Now, I don't know about you, but too often I, I have thought of Jesus as like this, this stoic, unfeeling kind of robot that just goes through life. He says the things we read that he said. He does the things for people that we read that he did. And then when he finished his job, he just went back. I don't know, maybe it's from the, some of the old movies or whatever that we just have this picture of Jesus firm going through. But one of the things I love, I have loved about watching The Chosen is the emotional range of Jesus. It's like a new picture. It's, it's reframing, it's resetting almost Jesus in my mind. Because there's scenes in that show, and again, it's, it's a show, there's some artistic license, but there's scenes there where we, where we see Jesus and the lineup of people waiting to be healed. And we understand that, like we just read, he, he groans under the weight of that. And at the end of the night, after the lineup's finally cleared, we see him walking to the camp in that show, and he's just wiped. It's like, wow, Jesus gets tired. Man, Jesus, Jesus carries his emotions and, and feels things. We, we see this in the text, but sometimes I think we, we can just read kind of woodenly and miss out that part of who Jesus is. When he came face to face with sin and brokenness, he groaned under the weight of it. The preacher here knows that this is also how we'll feel 
when we stare at it for too long. Yet we're not really used to doing this, are we? We kind of take little glimpses of oppression in the world, then we turn our eyes away before it gets too heavy. This is often why there are, there are concerts and music festivals and, and comedy tours that are fundraisers for disaster relief or whatever. I'm sure we've all watched one or more of these over the years where a bunch of comedians get together and they do their stand-up and then they say, hey, by the way, we're raising money tonight for this thing. And, and then we can all feel bad for a moment because this bad thing has happened, but then the next comedian comes on and we feel better about ourselves. We distract ourselves with that because we don't want to look at these things for too long. The preacher then makes this incredible uh, observation. I think maybe quickly if we read it, we want to reject it outright, but I think we need to sit under it. He says, all labor, all toil, all work, and all skill in work or skilled work that's done is because of one person's jealousy or envy of another. Hang on there. We're only working because we're jealous of other people? The reason we work so hard is because we envy what someone else has? And I, I, again, the first time I read that, I'm like, no way. And then I think about it for a bit. Oh, yeah. Maybe a little bit. See, envy, envy is a sneaky little minx. It's so subtle. It's one that, it, it's, it's hard to kind of put our fingers on, and yet, it's always been one of the seven deadly sins. Deep in our hearts, we want to be noticed. We want attention. We want recognition. And those desires can lead us down all sorts of insidious paths. I might not go out of my way to overtly sabotage someone to make myself look better. But when I see them stumble, I might get a little, little smirk, a little something in my heart that says, ah, well, I can pick up where this guy failed. Jesus tells me that I should love you and tells us that we should love our neighbors, but how often even there do we take the words of Jesus and be like, yeah, but what's in that for me? And we're, we're selfish, jealous people when we really think about it, isn't it? And so the preacher here, he's, he's going right at our hearts, right after our deepest longings and thoughts, and he's bringing us faith face-to-face with the question, why are you striving? Why are you toiling? Why are you working? And why are you still working? And the challenge for us is to consider how much of our time is given to others instead? How much of us, uh, how much of our time is given towards me instead of we? And rather to start thinking, how, how can I be a giver instead of a taker? How can I be a servant instead of one who is expecting to be served? And when we stop to think about serving and loving others, it it kind of prevents two extreme examples that were given here in that that little proverb in verse 5 and 6. Either just being idle and lazy or extreme busyness. Now again, laziness is a way of, of sort of not loving or of even hating your neighbors because you have nothing to give them. You don't do anything, so you don't have things, so you cannot be generous. Uh, verse 5 says, The fool folds his arms, he's not doing anything, and consumes his own flesh. This is, uh, let me say it's obviously, I hope it's obvious, uh, a, a sort of poetic exaggeration, but it's meant to show us the catastrophe of being too inward focused. We just enjoy our own lives for what it is for us, and, and ultimately there's nothing around us, and all we're left with, even for food, is ourselves. 
Instead of enjoying and giving to others, we're left all alone. I'm sure we've probably all heard it said that nobody on their deathbed says, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. But Ecclesiastes here seems to at least encourage us that we should have spent some time in the office, right? Work for something so we have something to give, to be generous with. Now, the opposite to this idle laziness that leaves us with nothing would be frantic busyness. It's described of of having two handfuls of effort, and it's a pursuit of the wind. Now, again, I bet we've seen this person. Maybe we've even been this person in times of our lives, frantically running from one thing to the next, trying to hold everything around us together so it looks like everything's okay on the outside, where, in fact, inside we're wishing that today's gone so I can be living in a better tomorrow. And so often we'll, we'll wish for tomorrow because we think we'll find something better there, something new there. Maybe, maybe tomorrow the house will clean itself. Maybe, maybe tomorrow I won't have this, this pesky Bible reading plan to do. I'll just know all the stuff and we'll be great. We'll be there. Maybe, t- maybe tomorrow the kids will behave and not fight. Maybe tomorrow I'll have that perfect relationship. I'll have that perfect renovation, that perfect house, that, that promotion, that, that little bit more. Maybe tomorrow. But one writer says to live like this is to shoot yourself in one foot so that you can hop on the other foot faster. That's more than a little bit foolish. So what we're called to do is to stop and enjoy today for the gift that it is because nothing is guaranteed for tomorrow. I can look back on, on, on many times and many stages in my life that I'd wished away. But now I, I look back at those windows of time with a bit of regret because in the moment when I longed for something different, whether it was being old enough to move out, whether it was to have, I don't know, sib- siblings that I didn't fight with all the time or, or this thing or that thing, be done with school, be into it, whatever it was, all the things that I wished out of, now I look back and I, I miss what I could have had there. And some of those relationships, some of that maturity even, it's going to take a lot longer to get back than it would have if I just invested in the time, in the time I was there. So what do we do? Well, we don't want to be lazy, but we also don't want to be frantically busy. The target for us is somewhere in the middle. That's where verse 6 says we'll find that rest, that quietness. It's better to have one handful with rest, tranquility, and peace saying know your limits. We, we were made to work, but know your limits. The Puritan preacher Jeremiah Burroughs suggested that we learn to find our contentment by way of subtraction rather than addition. So often we think that in order for us to be happy, we just need that next thing, whether it's that, that next income bracket, that, that newer toy, that new renovation, that new car, whatever, whatever it is, that next thing will make us happy. But he says instead that the Christian has another way to contentment. He can bring his desires down to his possessions. Similarly, G.K. Chesterton says there's two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more, but the other is to just desire less. So we can hate our neighbor and destroy ourselves, chasing after the next thing and the next thing, or we can love our neighbor and thereby love ourselves. The preacher continues to to drive home this point that happiness comes from living with we instead of me with a couple other examples. Look at verse 7. He says, Again, I saw futility under the sun. 
There's a person without a companion, without even a son or a brother. And though there's no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good things. This too is a futile and miserable task. The picture we have here in these verses is, is the person who's, who's the CEO, who's, who's the, the high-ranking, successful person on the top of whatever list you want to see. They made it to every mountain that he or she ever wanted to climb. They had everything they thought they'd wanted, but they find themselves utterly alone at the top. There's no spouse. There's no kids. Any family relationships that are there are broken. But anyways, if they had those things, they'd just get in the way anyways. This is the person who's, who's wildly wealthy, and yet it's still not enough. Always looking for that next dose of success. One example I read is that he or she could buy dinner for everyone in the restaurant, but nobody wants to sit with them. But you know what? That's all right because they don't want to sit with anyone either. Sometimes when we read the Bible, when we come to passages like this that describe the rich, the wealthy, it's really easy to, to point fingers at them because that's always like somebody else, right? It doesn't matter where we're at. It doesn't matter what we've got on our T4s. It's the next category that's rich or the one after that or something. It's really easy to, but it's not money that's the root of the evil. The Bible never says that. The Bible says it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And so what we're reading here, uh, Ecclesiastes is agreeing with 1 Timothy chapter 6, saying the same thing but in a more poetic imagery. He's saying that, that two-handed toiling for wealth, going after it because you love it and you just want more, and it's, there's always the next thing. Two-handed toiling for wealth as an end in itself is a root of evil. It grows like a strangling vine around the heart and harm spreads its tentacles into several different directions at once. Uh, there's a pastor in the States, you maybe have heard of him, Matt, Matt Chandler, and he was preaching through Ecclesiastes, uh, and he used this illustration in his sermon series. He said that he'd never had a girl come into his office in tears and tell him that she hates her dad because he used to drop her off at school in a beat-up old Ford. And it was just so embarrassing that she'd never been able to forgive him. He's never had a girl tell her that, that she hates her dad because he didn't buy her a pony or didn't send her on the ski trip at school. But he's met plenty of young women whose dad had a $60,000 car, or it doesn't sound like that much anymore, $100,000 car, whatever it was, right? The fancy car. Could have paid for the whole school to go on the ski trip. But they didn't know their daughter because they were thoroughly wrapped up in, their, in pursuing their own value. The love of money, the pursuit of wealth is the root of all kinds of evil. And Ecclesiastes and the whole Bible really have a, a beautiful solution for us to sever that root, to cut out that rot, to kill the evil, we spend on other people. We, we, we have a loose grip on the things that are ours, and we generously give them away. And that's the surefire way to find contentment and happiness. And as we grow in our generosity of spirit, the more we think about the we instead of the me, we'll find that we're actually easier to be around. People like to be around people who think about others, right? It's, it's hard. When you're in a room or a, around a table with someone who only thinks about themselves, like, man, how do I get out of here? This is, like, this is just suffocating. But when we start to think about others, man, people want to be around us, which actually is a way that we love ourselves because we need one another. 
One writer says this, where wealthy people, and let's include all of us here, okay, where we love our neighbors by working for them as much as ourselves and love them with our own hard-earned money or talents or skills or kind words or whatever else, the beautiful byproduct is that they end up loving themselves. They actually provide the best kind of care for themselves because they're no longer alone. See, for the preacher, the value of life isn't what you earn, but it's who you relate to. It's not about what you can buy, but it's about what you can give and who you are. And he makes that clear for us in verses 9 to 12, verses I bet you've heard before. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. If either falls, his companion can lift him up, but pity the one who falls without another to lift them up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, uh, two can resist him. And a cord of three strands is not easily broken. The poetic wisdom of this passage reminds us that we were designed and meant to live together in community with interdependence. Now, three might be better than two, as it says, but, but four might be better than three, and, and five better than four. And imagine what we could do as a, a larger group, right? This is how we were made to be together. It's how God has designed us to flourish. And so let me ask the question and give it to you to think about for the day, for the week maybe. How are you doing with how are we doing? How are you doing with how are we doing? Well, thinking about other people. Ecclesiastes gives us this middle ground to, to walk, right? The, the, the one handful, but rest in the other. And before you start thinking, great, thanks for this, Pastor. Now I have one more thing to do this week. Just have a look at that statement. Now I have one more thing to do this week. It's not about you. The whole point is that we cannot do this alone. We cannot do life alone. So where do we look? Well, I'll invite you to look around the room, first of all. But even more than that, if Jesus called us to live this way, and we saw that he did in Mark chapter 10, or 12, excuse me, then we look to him. And we can look to Jesus and we say, Jesus, how are we doing? And Jesus, the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith, will help. And Jesus, the one who stepped out of heaven for our sake, will help. And the one who, who didn't come to be served, even though he deserved that, but the one who came to serve, he will help. And Jesus, the one who says, come to me, everyone who's feeling weak and shouldering a burden that's too much to bear, he will help. Jesus, the one who came to show us the way to truly be human, will help. And the one who lived a life of perfect obedience and then died on a cross in our place will help. And this Jesus invites you to come, to draw near to him and he will draw near to you. And the Holy Spirit will come and do a work in your heart and a work in my heart that only he can do. And he will help us turn all of our eyes and knees into we's for his glory. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this text. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these words that were written hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years ago, but still ring so true and relevant today. Jesus, I, I pray that uh, even now that you would 
speak to our hearts, that you would poke and prod at things in our hearts to, to, to show where, where we've got uh, the me in the place of the we. Help us to, to see the areas where we're, we're asking, how am I doing, instead of thinking, Jesus, what are we up to today? I pray that you would continue to, to work to reveal um, our disordered desires and our disordered uh, beliefs and responsibilities, our disordered uh, longings even, and help us reorder those things. Help us to put you on top. Help us to think of others more. Help us to, to look to your example as the one flourishing human with the perfect relationship with, with God, with others, and with creation. And draw our hearts to you.